0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story. Written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And it's raining, men. Hallelujah.
0: Hallelujah, indeed. We've got quite an episode for Valentine's week, listeners. First up is the third entry in the Magical Michael franchise, (laughs) Magic Mike's Last Dance.
1: And then we're going to be pairing Magic Mike's Last Dance with our watch list pick, which is the 1968 movie The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster, another shirtless man.
0: Brace yourselves, get out your umbrellas for episode 369 of Seeing and Believing. What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. Do you like bartending? It's not really what I do. What is it that you really do? But then, you came along and gave me these unexpected, magical moments that made me remember who I really was I'm bad, I'm so, so Come with me to Welcome to episode 369 of Seeing and Believing and before anybody has any worries, do not fear. I am going to keep my shirt on for this entire episode.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. No, you know,
0: there's it's not a horror podcast, it's a movie review podcast. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna keep it light here.
1: We'll leave the shirt taking off to the professionals, I think.
0: That's right. And boy, do we ever have the grand parade of professionals for this week's episode. <laughs> uh, we are, of course, going to be talking about the new Magic Mike movie, Magic Mike's Last Dance. We're also going to be checking out Frank Perry's 1968 film, The Swimmer, which I'm really looking forward to getting into. There's mm-hmm. a lot to talk about there. And I'm really curious to know like what you made of it, but but we'll save that for the second segment I guess.
1: It'll be a fun conversation to dive into so to speak.
0: Uh-huh. There will be a lot of puns perhaps on this on this episode, but before we, you know, get too far into that, let's just start off with the plot synopsis for Magic Mike's Last Dance. After his custom furniture business goes belly up, Channing Tatum's erstwhile Male entertainer, Mike Lane, is broke and taking gig work and bartending jobs wherever he can find them. But with this being the latest entry in the MMCU, that's the Magic Mike Cinematic Universe, Mm -hmm. we know that something will, of course, eventually get Mike back on stage. And that something is Maxandra, played by Salma Hayek-Penalt, a wealthy socialite who sweeps him off to London for a creative project whose nature only becomes clear to Mike after he's speedo deep in it. That project involves taking a stuffy theater piece and turning it into, what else? A raucous celebration of everything that the MMCU has come to stand for, sweet dance moves, and hunks. So... So many hunks. <laughs> so, Sarah, um, you and I, we, we both liked the the very first Magic Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, Steven Soberg directed that one. He took a break from the director's chair for Magic Mike XXL, even mm-hmm. though he was serving as cinematographer and I think as editor on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Gregory Jacobs took over directing duties on that second film. And the second film kind of moved away from the more grounded portrait of Uh, Magic Mike's profession uh, into something that's kind of a little bit more amiable a little bit more larkish and now with Soderbergh back for this third installment directing so I'm curious to know your thoughts on where Soderbergh takes what might be Magic Mike's final outing what what did you think of the second one Mm -hmm. Um, since I not as clear as to what your reaction on that one is and where do you think the culmination with this third movie uh, ends up for you
1: I like the second one fine. I think it's a really enjoyable, like joyful movie. But I think it's a little bit telling that the most famous scene for Magic Mike XXL is not one that Mike himself really figures into all that much. It's the convenience store scene in which one of his other friends um, attempts to make the convenience store clerk smile by doing a routine up and down the aisles with a bag of Cheetos and a bottle of water. Very funny scene, very entertaining scene. A little bit more on the breezy side, which is definitely a big departure from the original Magic Mike, which, as you mentioned, I definitely love um, and actually took the opportunity to revisit this past weekend just because I like it so much. I'm not so sure about the direction that Magic Mike's Last Dance is going in either because it feels as though it's almost trying to strike a balance between the tones of its two predecessors. So the first Magic Mike is very grounded. It's very much focused on the economics of stripping that these men are involved in. It's a, It's very much focused in the idea of an artistic calling versus what you have to do in order to be able to scrape together the bills and get by. And XXL, for as much as I enjoy watching it, really is just interested in having a good time and kind of leaves all of those worries and anxieties behind. And that makes for an entertaining watch, but it isn't a particularly deep one. Magic Mike's Last Dance kind of takes the economic anxiety angle a little bit into account, at least in the setup, and then it decides to just sort of leave all of that behind as it finds more and more things to be distracted by. So it feels as al- almost as though... Um, Magic Mike's Last Dance is trying to do a little bit too much, trying to explain itself a little bit too much. Like one of the strengths of the original is that it is about economics and it's about trying to scrape by, but it's not going to explicitly tell you that. And Magic Mike's Last Dance is going to explicitly tell you precisely how you should feel about any given scene within the movie. And I think being told how to feel about a movie as I'm watching it is something that's always going to rub me a little bit the wrong way. And as enjoyable as the dance scenes are to watch in this one, and we can get into that um, through the course of our conversation, I just don't think that Last Dance is able to pull off quite as sweet moves as the original is, um, purely because it's just getting so sweaty trying to impress me with what it's trying to do. So I'm curious to know how you felt about Magic Mike's Last Dance.
0: I mean, Last Dance, it's kind of a strange beast, isn't it? Because it it does spend a lot of time telling you things about, you know, about the nature of dance. There's a, a, a voiceover narration that kind of gives a, a pocket history of the anthropology of dance from, you know, the very first humans to the modern day. Um, there is some attention paid to the fact that uh, Mike in this film is, you know, he's a failed business owner. Now he's kind of working as a bartender to make ends meet and, the promise extended to him by Salma Hayek's Maxandra is one of uh, of some sort of financial solvency. He doesn't have to just do dreary gig work. He can do something that he actually enjoys. So there's there's kind of that dimension to it as well. And yet it also is kind of just about the fantasy. Mm-hmm. All three of these movies are, you know, Interested in that to some extent, the fact that, you know, these these male strippers are selling a fantasy. Like when they are dancing for their patrons, um, they're uh, extending them a fantasy of, you know, a physically perfect specimen who is laser focused on them and will present himself as an object to be openly lusted after. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole point of it isn't necessarily that these... Uh, women viewers want to be with him, it, but they want to kind of fantasize about what it might be like to be with someone like him. Mm-hmm. And that, fant- that fantasy really chafes hard <laughs> against the, the more grounded material that was in the first one, uh, was kind of laid aside for the most part in the second one, and mm-hmm. then kind of comes, is sort of jammed back in here, it feels like, in the third one. I don't think they work together well at all. And mostly what it did for me was by the end of the picture, it just kind of exposed just how threadbare and uh, frankly, gross, (laughs) I found the fantasy that it was peddling and really wanted me to buy into.
1: Hmm, Yeah. Let's talk about that fantasy a little bit, I think, because the movie is really clearly trying to present this idea of spending time looking at all of these men as... A choice that you are supposed to be able to make that is something that is self fulfilling and self empowering, which I think is a really interesting thing to state or to argue, but the movie doesn't really do a good job arguing its point. It just says, here are a bunch of beefcake men, and here you have the ability to look at them because you want to, but it doesn't really explain the how or the why that that is even necessarily important. It kind of feels as though it's pushing the idea of objectification off women and onto men. And giving women the ability to kind of turn the tables, so to speak, so give you like a female gaze as opposed to a male gaze and to say that that's progress to turn that objectifying objectifying gaze back on men, when I feel as though the objectifying gaze is something that we shouldn't be subjecting <laughs> anybody to because it's essentially dehumanizing, you're literally turning somebody else into an object. And the original Magic Mike understands that, and it understands that Mike has taken on this job because, one, he needs the money, and two, he's very good at it, and he's a very good dancer. And all of these movies are good at presenting him as a good dancer, but they get at the idea, at least the first two anyway— They get at the idea that he's not just doing this in order to be an object, he's also doing it purely for the love of being able to move and then to be able to present that fantasy, but there's still kind of a a professional wall between his dancing persona, and then who he is as a person. And here in Magic Mike's Last Dance, I feel like that wall between personas has kind of been dropped, and he's just the one character who is intended to be an object of fantasy, both for Maxandra and then also for the audience watching the movie, and then for the audience of the show that he's putting together with Maxandra. And all of those conflicting ideas, I think, kind of flatten Last Dance so that Mike is reduced only to an object. He doesn't really have quite as much agency as he does in the first two movies. He doesn't really have much of a choice in his place in the central plot that drives the movie. He's just kind of along for the ride. And he's along for the ride in a way that didn't really make me believe him as a character in the same way that the previous movies had at all.
0: Well, the weird thing about this movie is it kind of opens up with uh, the the genesis of Maxandra and Mike's relationship, at first seems like it's setting up some sort of, again, commentary on class. She's ultra rich, he's struggling just to get by, and she's able to sort of pull him into her world just by dangling the promise of, at first, $6,000 just for one dance for her alone, Mm -hmm. and then... You know, essentially becoming his uh, his patron and paying for him to put on a show all his own, being his producer, so mm-hmm. to speak, and and all the while they're also kind of navigating this this burgeoning romance of sorts, which also I didn't find at all convincing mm-hmm. partly because the way it opens up is it's it's purely the power imbalance is so great that it seems like the movie is setting up the fact that she's so rich that she doesn't even fully understand how much more power than him she has mm-hmm. she doesn't fully understand um just uh how it's possible to exploit somebody without necessarily meaning any malice towards them mm-hmm. and yet as the film goes on Mike's character kind of starts off as being this fish out of water in a socialite's world and not being comfortable there. And then he kind of just decides to be comfortable or the movie just loses interest in his comfort level to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that kind of just leaves it in a place where it's almost like we've been sucked into a fantasy, but it's just a very – it's like walking into one of those old West towns where all the facades are just cardboard standups. They're not, (laughs) there's no building behind them. There's Mm -hmm. no structure. And that results in, in me feeling like, well, what is this movie saying? I don't know if it's saying anything, if it's to the extent that it is saying anything, maybe it's just saying it's fun to watch beautiful people gyrate for you, which I mean, that's, pornographic and that's wrong I feel like <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know it, it feels like it's really kind of trying to tap into sort of this voguish sex positivity mm-hmm. without really <laughs> without really thinking through any of it. And that was very frustrating for me.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's because there's not really very much consistency with Mike's character, not just within the movie itself, but across all three of these movies. Like there is a moment in the very first movie where Mike meets somebody, takes him under his wing. And one of the first things he says is, we got to get you new shoes. You need to stop wearing sneakers around everywhere. It's not appropriate to wear those to the club or to work when you're on a construction site. And then one of the very first things that I noticed about Mike in this movie is that the only shoes he wears are Chuck Converse sneakers. And they're kind of used as a shorthand for he's, you know, working class American. And one of the first things that they do when they get him over to London is to swap out his shoes for something a little bit nicer. And it kind of feels as though Last Dance is trying to kind of repeat that fish out of water piece but in this case, it's Mike who's the fish out of water, as opposed to somebody who very clearly knows who he is and how he's going to operate in the world. And that inconsistency, even just from movie to movie, kind of took me out of being able to believe Mike as a character in the same way that I could for the previous two films. But there's also that inconsistency just across the entire movie as well. So he's, he's got this... He's not entirely sure how he's going to be able to make ends meet. He's taking a lot of additional jobs, just bartending bar and trying to build back together his business that he lost in uh, COVID and in the economic downturn. Um And yet he doesn't really seem as though he carries any of that weight or that anxiety with him. It's just, well, I guess somebody's offered me a ridiculous amount of money to go over to England for a month, so I might as well just drop everything and go. And you're right, I don't believe that romance. I don't really believe that relationship either. It just kind of feels as though he's there Purely because we have a story that we need to tell and we might as well just hook it on to the Magic Mike name because that's a recognizable name, which doesn't really give any consistency to the story that's being told here at all.
0: Yeah, I wonder actually if the secret sauce for the the Magic Mike franchise, at least for me... Uh, left the franchise after their ver- their very first movie, and I'm thinking of Matthew McConaughey. So his huh. his character Dallas in the in the very first movie, I think, is by far the most interesting character of of the entire franchise because we do get to see him kind of be the MC, you know, work the crowd and sort of do his you know his lackadaisical kind of slacker voice, you know, turn on that that McConaughey charm, mm-hmm. and yet. When we when Soderbergh shows him not emceeing, not being on stage, he's got this lean, hungry look to him, mm. and I think that performance encapsulates uh, something that was lost in these second two installments, which is that you know, kind of the this male entertainer world. There are things that are fun about it. You know, Mike does genuinely enjoy dancing. He does genuinely enjoy bringing. Uh, joy to uh, the women who come to see him. Like there's, it's not like just all darkness and despair all the time. Mm-hmm. And yet there, there, there's another side of that coin that simply can't be wished away, which is the fact that it is exploitative. And even if he um, takes some enjoyment out of it, it's still he's he's being exploited because he needs the money. Mm-hmm. And um, all of the people he works with, kind of. They either need the money, or we just don't know enough about them to see them as anything other than gyrating hunks, mm-hmm. capital G, capital H. And I think that the the second two movies just seem kind of more interested in like it's fun to bring joy to people and uh, move, you know, move your body mm-hmm. and um, just be be around your bros. The The second two movies, or at least the second movie, really places heavy emphasis on kind of this brotherhood of male strippers. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, they kind of lose sight of the fact that it can be both at the same time. We don't – it doesn't have to be either one or the other. Mm-hmm. And they seem to think that, well, we need to not necessarily present this – world untruthfully as something where just everybody's miserable all the time mm-hmm. but in kind of trying to do that they overcompensate and it results in something that just feels again like a fantasy and not just a fancy, but a, a, a lie, maybe.
1: Yeah, it does feel a little bit disingenuous, I think. And it feels a little bit more disingenuous here. What disappoints me the most about Last Dance is it does feel as though Soderbergh is kind of trying to put a little bit of a spin or an angle on this material. Like, with Magic Mike... I think everybody was going to this movie expecting to get one thing and getting something completely different. I got the same um, impression when I went to go see Hustlers when that movie also first came out. So when I saw that in the theater, I distinctly remember watching a lot of phones light up whenever there was a scene that wasn't set in the club or that was very dialogue heavy. And it was very clear that everybody who had gone to see that movie had gone to see one thing and they were getting something completely different about the actual lives and anxieties of these characters on screen explaining why they're doing the things that they're doing. And here, I think Soderbergh sort of sets up that slant or that angle. So you get that power imbalance between Max and Mike. You also get a couple of his tricks that I think he's kind of done in other movies a little bit differently. So There's a scene where Mike and Max go out to dinner with some of her friends and colleagues and they're talking about what they're going to do with this show that they're putting on and how they're going to use that show to get one over on an enemy of Max's, essentially. And there's been some tension between Mike and Max up to this point because neither of them have been able to be fully truthful with each other. And at one point, they look across the table at each other and... One of them says, I'm the happiest that I've ever been. And when they do it, it's in direct address to the camera. And you can tell immediately that this is not the happiest that they've ever been. There's other stuff roiling under the surface. And the two of these characters understand each other well enough that they can tell what's going on underneath that facade. Soderbergh also does this in his 2002 movie Solaris, but he does it to much greater effect because there isn't any dialogue. You don't need to hear the character lie in order to understand that they're lying to each other. And I think that's because Solaris is a little bit more tightly like woven together thematically, whereas here... Last Dance is just kind of all over the place, because there is that power commentary. There is that idea that, hey, maybe stripping isn't necessarily all that bad. And it's fun to watch people who are beautiful dance beautifully. And then there's also a lot of that additional voiceover about, you know, the history of dance and why we do it, like trying to explicitly tell us precisely why these characters want to do that thing. And all of it kind of feels jumbled together and not really like defined to a point. And as a result, the movie just sort of scatters itself off into a ton of different directions, and I, I found myself kind of trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what they all meant together. And I wasn't able to do it because I don't know that all of those pieces knew what they were doing as part of the whole either.
0: It's uncharacteristically. I feel like when I watch a Soderbergh film, you know, whether you know I end up loving it or not, I do feel like there's kind of this this concerted, um, thematic. Uh, and, and stylistic strategy that he's pursuing. But in Last Dance, it really felt honestly like it was it was confused on just a visual level you mentioned that that dinner scene where you know they they stare at each other and they look at each other that uh those shots actually do come back at the at the climax of the movie when you know they put on the big show it's uh, you know a rousing success spoiler alert as you know if, as if anyone thought it wasn't going to be
1: it's a sports movie it's going to be it, a rousing success right
0: it's, it's going you know it's it's a rousing success and and during that climax we kind of get uh, a series of of you know really co- a montage of flashbacks to Max and Mike's uh previous relationship. <clears throat> and uh, the overall impression of that sequence is to give the the feeling like you know essentially this is the culmination not just of their work putting the show together but also of their relationship. Mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's one of those moments where where you're you're supposed to see the growth of their relationship and think now they're they're going to you know they're going to get together these crazy kids are going to find a way to work it out somehow and i'm <laughs> glad they are but that shot that you're describing where where there's all that stuff supposedly roiling under the surface when we first see it to stick it in there as part of the you know cute romance montage mm-hmm. kind of robs it of that heft it makes it it seem like did i misinterpret it the first time because it seems like Recontextualized in that way, it's meant to just be—you know—this was sort of a tender moment that they shared, locking mm-hmm. eyes across a crowded room, and that kind of dissonance, I think, extends to various other moments as well. When when Mike first arrives in London, we get all these pointed shots of tourist crap, essentially, like you know yes. the 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 London teddy bears, the London Eye, London Bridge—you know, all these all these things that. Essentially, Mike, as a Floridian who's never been to England before, that's the way he would be experiencing. this. like, this is not his place. This is, you know, a place he would go sightseeing in. It's not his home. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the end of the film, it kind of seems like it's trying to tell us that Mike has sort of found his home here but it's not clear what changed other than that the movie just wants you to believe it has. Mm -hmm. And in that case, maybe the movie's become a victim of its own fantasy in that it's succumbed to the fantasy of dance heals all, but it kind of forgets to bring the audience along, or at least it didn't bring me along.
1: Yeah, I think a generous read of those intercuts between the romance leading up to the final dance scenes and then the final dance scene itself, I think a, a generous read of that would be that, um, you know, we remember things differently, or they get recontextualized as we're remembering them and thinking about them. I'm not entirely sure that the movie's actually trying to do that, like, that feels like a little bit of a stretch, even as I'm saying it out loud. And it almost disappointed me because it felt as though it was distracting from the feats of athleticism that were on display in those final dance scenes, too. And the dance scene that we're talking about that is intercut is genuinely like a gorgeously choreographed and shot piece of cinema. I, I really appreciate the way that Steven Soderbergh shoots the human body in motion. He's one of those rare filmmakers who usually does know when to just hold a shot and to let us watch somebody do something in its completion without cutting away, without cutting or showing something in like a mid shot that only shows them from the chest up. It is a genuine pleasure to watch people like Channing Tatum, to watch people like Channing Tatum who know how to dance, to just watch them dance and to watch them move. And the sequences where the movie just kind of lets go all of those pieces of pretension, lets go of all of the Additional themes that it's trying to bring out and pull to the forefront, and it just lets us sit and watch somebody dance, I think are the pieces where the movie is at its most successful, because it's just focused on that piece of motion. I think the other place where I kind of take issue with this movie is that it almost feels as though it's trying to clean up the act of stripping in a way, and it's doing it in a way that feels kind of disingenuous. So... The original Magic Mike, very clearly set in kind of a CD strip club, Magic Mike XXL, is literally going to a stripping convention. And most of the dance sequences in Last Dance are dance sequences, but they're not stripping sequences. And yet at the same time, they're trying to encourage the audience to objectify the men who are on display and on the stage but there isn't really all that much that's time that's spent on the act of stripping in the way that the first two movies do it's just men who are dancing and sometimes they occasionally happen to be shirtless or occasionally they'll take off a shirt but it's it's kind of eliding even the act of taking off one's clothes while you're dancing and just focusing on those men dancing in various states of undress it's not a particularly like i don't know sexy kind of dance for the most part and that also feels a little bit disingenuous in that these movies are ostensibly about the tensions behind dancing as a stripper as opposed to dancing in any other form of way i don't know it it felt as though the movie was trying to sanitize the act of stripping while also saying hey you should go and and ogle all of these men and objectify them all at the same time and that felt really disingenuous and kind of untruthful to me
0: i mean I don't think that its fantasy could really sustain a you know an honest reckoning with what stripping is and what it demands not just of the person stripping but also of the audience. Mm. Um, the the whole conceit of this show is the, the Max and Micah are, are pulling a switcheroo on their audience. Mm-hmm. You know the audience is going to come. They think they're going to see some stuffy theater piece, but then aha, it's going to be actually you know male strippers on stage you know doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which essentially means that the <clears throat> the audience in the movie is totally absolved of any sort of moral responsibility for going to a strip show hmm. um, and the audience is is absolved as well like we 're not actually watching a strip show as the as the audience is in the movie theater we're just watching a theater piece and mm. it's much more palatable that way and that means that the you know the sexual undercurrent that's brought about when you know the the mc in this final show is sort of talking about desiring men and and women wanting to be frank with their own wants and desires it it feels very it, it gives it an artsy sheen that i think like you said is totally disingenuous and doesn't reckon at all with the moral implications of stripping as a profession and stripping as something that uh, has an audience who has to engage with it somehow and often engages with it for immoral reasons.
1: Yeah, yeah. and it also... I would love to know what this audience would have actually thought if it had been a real audience that had undergone that kind of switcheroo, because I personally would have been a little bit annoyed that I'd paid money for one thing and had been given another. (laughs) There's this thread of asking for and continuing to receive consent throughout the entire movie. And I think that that is a very good thing. But this audience also didn't consent to attend a strip show. And yet it's treated as though that's something that everybody would naturally want. They just need to have it presented to them. And that feels like a pretty dishonest way to approach the idea of human desire, because you're essentially telling other people how and why they should desire somebody else. And if you don't treat that with complete and total enthusiasm every single time that it's presented to you, then you're kind of diso- being dishonest with yourself. And that feels like a really gross and like one dimensional way of approaching the idea of desiring another person or watching another person, you know, like it, it just feels a little bit like that final, quote unquote, artistic move, which I don't think has very much art to it. It, it feels as though there wasn't really all that much thought behind it either within the universe of the movie or without in the script writing phase of making this movie either
0: i mean i yeah i I always wonder if we're analyzing it more than it's meant to be analyzed like maybe (laughs) maybe this movie you know magic mike xxl isn't really the the sort of movie that wants to be about stripping as, as anything more than sort of like something that bros do and it's you know, it just kind of it, it's a it's a larkish thing to do just to kind of make the world just a slightly more bearable place. Mm-hmm. And I don't really buy into that. But I mean, like the overall project of the movie is consistent throughout. Mm-hmm. Like it it takes a position on what its characters are doing and who they are and sees it through in a mostly coherent way. I don't think Magic Mike's Last Dance uh does either of those things uh sadly
1: yeah it's really unfortunate too because the movie really is breaking a sweat to try to get us to think about the act of dance and why we dance and how we dance and who we dance for and who we watch as they dance as well and I don't know, it it keeps on trying to intellectualize that and then also to just say, don't think about it, just lean back and relax. And both of those things, I think, are kind of at war with each other, which led to me thinking that the movie itself is both overthinking everything and then also not really considering the stakes of the argument that it's presenting to the audience either. It kind of feels like a movie that's at war with itself. Albeit, you know, not a particularly militant one, but it's still at odds with what it's trying to say at different points in time. And those points may sound kind of appealing in the moment, but when they're considered as a whole, it just doesn't feel particularly coherent to me at all.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, sadly, we didn't care much for Magic Mike's last dance, but if any listeners out there have had a chance to see it and have a different take or want to support us in our take, we're very interested in hearing from you either way. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at com or tweet us. On C Believe Pod. We're also over on Letterboxd. If you want to check out our Letterboxd account, it's also C Believe Pod over there. Let us know your thoughts on Magic Mike. We're very curious to know who else has seen this and has thoughts about it. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about The Swimmer here in a second. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And, you know, this week was Valentine's week. So, of course, it seemed appropriate that love would be in the air um, and that movies about love might also be in the air. So, Sarah, what did you question our listeners about this week?
1: So over on Twitter, I asked, do you have a favorite romance movie? seemed pretty straightforward and we got some really good answers this week kevin um jeffrey overstreet responded with just a single screenshot from a little movie called what we do in the shadows specifically a screenshot of taika waititi's vampire character holding hands with an octogenarian who also happens to be the love of his life
0: Taiko Waititi's extremely sweet vampire in that movie is probably still his finest hour as as a <laughs> as a filmmaker and actor. I just think he's He's great in that movie, yeah.
1: And it's a wonderfully off the wall pick. I'm delighted that Jeffrey picked it. Uh, Joshua Wilson also responded with a single screenshot of *The Quiet Man*, a movie by John Ford, which I have not seen actually.
0: I have seen it. Uh, I mean, Steven Spielberg definitely had a good reason for picking a scene from *The Quiet Man* for that scene where Elliot and E.T. Mm. you know kisses that his his schoolgirl crush. I mean, there's there's a good reason. Maureen O'Hara, John Wayne. It's an iconic moment for sure.
1: Definitely. Uh, Dave Lester responded with, Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Does that not count as romance? And, you know, it's really bleak, but there are elements of romance in there. I don't know. I mean, I,
0: I respect that answer. I, I played a little bit with uh, choosing... Uh, spike jones is her for <laughs> for my own pick about romance I, I ended up not doing it for similar reasons to what you articulated it's like it's not really a f- you know it's not like a root for the romance kind of thing but uh, eternal sunshine it's a good movie
1: yeah well and i did say romantic movie i didn't say rom-com so you don't have to have people ending up together at the end uh, a couple of other good picks here christy Olson said roman holiday and Chris Williams said, "Before Sunset," both great picks there. And then Kyle Matthews wrote in with a little bit more of a contemporary pick, "Crazy Stupid Love," which I think had its 10th anniversary fairly recently. It's one that I still need to catch up with.
0: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen Roman Holiday either. Sadly, oh. I need to catch up with that one. We'll Just... have
1: to add that to the watch list because that's a really good one.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. all right. What Looking about to that?
1: Uh, what about you? Do you have a pick that isn't her?
0: Yes, uh, so Chris Williams uh, took Before Sunset. That was one of my picks. I was, I had the hardest time deciding between it and what I eventually settled on. And I mean, you have to give it up to Wong Kar Wai. In the Mood for Love mm-hmm. is just ravishingly beautiful, achingly romantic. The slow motion shots in the rain and the the final scene, uh, whispering into the tree trunk, just gets me every time beautiful movie i love love
1: that movie so much and it's gorgeous and you know romantic and also deeply sad and another movie where the characters don't end up together at the end necessarily so excellent pick there um in the mood for love is definitely one of my favorites but i have to go with wings of desire the vim vendors movie um Partly because it's just a very good romance and partly because it's a movie that's kind of in love with the idea of humanity in general, like there's a lot of different ideas of love kind of floating around within this movie, you know, God's love for humanity, and then just general love and goodwill towards human beings as broken as they are. And then also that romance that's at the center of the movie that drives the plot as well achingly gorgeous, makes me cry every time I watch it. I love mm. I love Wings of Desire.
0: I like that take on it, that it's a movie not just about uh, a romance between two individuals, but also kind of is just in love with humanity in general. I think that's a good take.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's, I, it's just, I think so much about the sequence where there's a character who is feeling a level of despair that he hasn't even fully clocked yet and an angel kind of watches him in his darkest moments and then kind of screams in agony and anger after that character makes a choice that he can't really take back. And that, I think, is the moment that really makes me sob every time I watch this movie because there's a lot of pain in that love and yet that love still isn't ever retracted from that character ever either.
0: Hmm. That's yeah. man, you make me want to go and rewatch Wings of Desire right now. So
1: <laughs> it's getting a 4K restoration from the Criterion Collection coming up this spring. So listeners, if you're interested and you've never seen Wings of Desire, it's definitely worth the investment. There.
0: Oh man, I, thanks for the tip. I'm gonna put that on my uh, on my birthday list. Maybe <laughs> uh, listeners, if you uh, haven't had a chance to respond yet, where our mailbag is always open. So if you had an answer for this question. Please let us know. Mm-hmm. We uh, are always looking to fill out that watch list uh, list of, of possibilities to come. So who knows? You, you might end up uh, coming up with a Roman holiday that gets added on to some future episode.
1: So now we've come to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it and then we talk about it. So, Kevin, this week you picked The Swimmer to pair with Magic Mike's Last Dance, which I think has some interesting potential connections with the Magic Mike universe, Uh, some of them a little bit more obvious than others. But before we get to that, I'll get into a brief synopsis of the story. So it's based on the short story of the same name by John Cheever in which a man named Ned Merrill decides to make his way home from a friend's house by essentially hopping from pool to pool across the county. He says that he's swimming home, and all of the times that he spends in between those pools are essentially just portage. Over the course of the day, as he drifts from pool to pool, making his way more and more close to his own house ned begins to have stranger and more hostile interactions with his neighbors and it becomes apparent that nothing is exactly what it seems so kevin i guess the most obvious connection here would be that magic mike's last dance and the swimmer both feature men who are pr- primarily shirtless for <laughs> most of the run time but i'm curious to know if there were any other connections that you were thinking of when you picked this movie and then also just What's your read on this story? Because it kind of feels a little bit surreal as you're watching it.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with that that first question. So when I when I first picked this, I obviously hadn't seen Magic Mike's Last Dance yet, and uh, I mainly picked it because I knew that um, based on the first Magic Mike, of course, there there's kind of this idea of um, physical beauty and some of the the pleasures that can be gained from that kind of being fleeting, and that really mm-hmm. seems you know, dead on with The Swimmer about how Burt Lancaster in this movie, you know, he is kind of, his character is slowly coming to terms with the fact that he isn't the young man he once was. He's not the footloose and fancy free person he once was. Um, and there, there is some sort of a reckoning in his future. And that's, that's something that immediately occurred to me. Having seen Magic Mike's last stance now and then re- revisiting this, I think there's so much more that we could talk about being a, a tie-in. The main one is that theme of fantasy. So we mm-hmm. were pretty hard on Magic Mike 3 for not really for, – for presenting a fantasy but simultaneously not taking it seriously enough and also taking it seriously but kind of in the wrong directions. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what I really like about The Swimmer is how it presents a man who is just – totally caught up in his his own fantasies of himself of of what his life means of what his relationships are and how that fantasy tells us so much about him hmm. um but also how this movie is very rigorous about how it doesn't uh it it permits us to kind of experience that fantasy the way that ned does as sort of it is you know there are lots of beautiful people. It is you know a sun-kissed setting that he's in. Um, he's he looks like Bert Lancaster, yeah, <laughs> and, and and yet by the end of the film, um, it brings us um into a place where the the fantasy isn't what endures. Mm-hmm. Um, it it ends up in a place where the. The, the fantasy is exposed for what it is. Mm. And I really appreciated that about the film. I, I, I liked how it was able to kind of do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Be very... To to engage, kind of show Ned on his own terms without judging him necessarily, but also by the end of the film, sort of the, the judgment is apparent. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to come from the, from the movie itself. So I don't know. I, I just... I liked that theme of fantasy. I thought it was really engaging. And I think that... The film is really successful, just kind of creating that state of mind and putting it on screen. It's so cinematic. Um, questions of, you know, what actually happened, how much of this stuff is all in his head, kind of is beside the point. Mm-hmm. I think it's just enough for the movie to let us into his head and sort of let us experience reality the way this guy experiences it. And there's just so much in terms of the cinematic devices that it employs to do that, that I just think it's uh, just spellbinding, uh, engrossing. It's it's a, a fantastic movie. Uh, I'm really glad that you got a chance to see it, and I'm really curious to know your take on it.
1: Yeah, um, I loved this. Um <laughs> It's funny, this might be one of my new favorite examples of an unreliable narrator kind of story, um, because it does do a very good job at getting us into Ned's head, while also simultaneously showing us how everybody else around him understands him to be kind of delusional or not fully in touch with reality. And yet at the same time... It kind of feels as though there's like this element of of magical realism where everything that's happening to him isn't necessarily happening in real time or maybe time isn't real anymore. It's kind of unclear. That's definitely a holdover from the short story by Cheever. And I think the magic trick of this movie is that it's able to translate that story which is very much just inside Ned's head with very minimal dialogue, just kind of thinking through his strategic moves from one location to the other as he's trying to swim his way home. It does a really good job of translating that internal feeling onto the screen without resorting to tricks of trying to keep us fully enclosed within his brain. Like we're allowed to see him from the outside, but we understand the world through his eyes. And that's a really difficult balance to pull off. And also in the meantime, I think one of the notes that I jotted down about partway through the movie was that um, this really feels like one of those stories that you hear where somebody visits a, a house and then the next day they try to go back to that house and they find out that the occupants of the house have been dead for 20 years, <laughs> except that it's Burt Lancaster's character that is has been the ghost this entire time. And it does a good job of getting at this guy who is sort of drifting through his own life and so utterly self-absorbed that he is unable to perceive of anything outside of the way that he thinks about life and his own relationships. He doesn't seem to be particularly aware of the harm that he's caused his own family or his own neighbors. And The movie plays a lot of this fairly straightforwardly and literally with just straight dialogue and interactions between the two characters. But you get a lot from very loaded looks between background characters as Ned says something that's potentially really delusional. And... We get the sense that we're not getting the entire story, and we also don't need to get the entire story, and we also don't need to know precisely how literal any of this is. It could be all in Ned's head, and that doesn't mean that the movie is any less true because of it. So as an adaptation, incredible job taking something that is very insular and, and fairly brief and on the page and turning it into something that feels simultaneously very epic and very small at the exact same time.
0: I haven't done a whole lot of deep reading on on criticism around the swimmer, so this might be a, an observation that's you know a, a settled question, but I really wonder, uh, you know, I, I'd I'd love to know what David Lynch thinks of this film, <laughs> and or if David Lynch saw this film at a formative time of of his life, and somehow it sort of ended up in his artistic DNA somewhere, because I, I feel like there's so much, uh, cinematically in the swimmer that feels Lynchian, not in terms of, you know, Lynch is v- much more grotesque than the swimmer is the Swimmer is you know, it's, it's not grotesque in the way Lynch is, but kind of that dream logic, the, the, the feeling that, you know, we're not sure how much of what we're seeing is real. And it ultimately doesn't really matter because, we're just in a place that the the film has brought us to and it's meant to evoke things in us and evoke reactions from us and make us ask questions of it and of its characters that there may not be any answers to but the asking is kind of what matters and hmm. the wondering is what matters hmm. and I, I i that just feels very lynchian to me just the 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 feeling of watching a movie and wondering about it and knowing that you're probably gonna be wondering about it for the rest of your life uh and it's kind of been designed to be that way uh I don't know i just i i really like how um it it feels like Frank Perry was kind of going for broke in the way he 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 built this picture it feels very much like a, a movie that's just like i've i am got i've got a movie you know the french new waves happened i'm gonna just go for broke yeah and so there's you know there's um there's fade-ins and fade-outs there's superimpositions. there's this one sequence where we see ned sort of running around and running and jumping and leaping and and the way that he's shot he basically looks like a th- He's he shot like a thoroughbred mm-hmm. being put through his paces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because we're seeing Ned the way he sees himself. He sees himself as just this perfect specimen, but also in a weirdly distant way. It, it's almost like Ned thinks of himself as a physical specimen first and a person with agency and responsibility second. Mm. And I think that it's fantastic that the movie is able to suggest a reading like that without ever once sort of uh, making it clear that, you know, there's no line of dialogue where Ned wonders, you know, <laughs> you know w- where he comments out loud along those lines. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's there to be mined, and I think this is a film that permits that kind of mining over and over.
1: I think it's extremely crucial that the entire time throughout the movie, Burt Lancaster is walking from pool to pool or swimming across a pool, and the only thing that he has are the swim trunks that he's wearing. He literally is just not an everyman figure because, again, he's Bert Lancaster. He has Bert Lancaster's build. But the only thing he has that signifies his identity and who he is is his own body, such as it is, and the things that he does. And in this case, the thing that he does is skate from location to location, from person to person, and just kind of dip in. And then dip right back out and move along with his life and not really caring about the people that he leaves behind in his wake, because as soon as he's gone from one pool and moving on to the next, those people don't really exist for him anymore. And that kind of speaks to the nature of the short story form of telling stories, I think, because more so than a novel with a short story You can be really focused on a situation that a character is in, and you don't really need to worry about that character's life or persona outside of that story. You can get a good sense of who they are as a character, but what's really important is what's happening on those few pages right then and there. And then once you've left that story behind, those characters essentially just don't exist anymore and that's kind of the case for the different characters that ned runs into as he spends his day trying to get closer and closer to home to him they're just instances that he runs into as he's you know cavorting isn't the right word but sort of sort of making his way through life As a thoroughbred. And I think it's very telling that in that scene where he's he's shot like a thoroughbred and he's doing jumps, he's in a horse paddock and he's literally jumping over actual Calavetti like jumps and fences. And he's engaging in constructing this fantasy about himself that looks utterly ridiculous from the outside. And yet while he's doing it, we completely believe in him that he is this physical specimen that can do these things. And at that moment in time, that's the only thing that matters, is that he can make it over that next jump.
0: He's a golden god, yes. essentially, <laughs> in, in that moment. Uh, he, he thinks he's a golden god, and he becomes one mm-hmm. uh, in, in the way that he's he's being filmed there. He's basically—the the movie is sort of, uh, you know, an, another way to think about it is it's, it's basically could be read as— a commentary on the American dream. I mean, Ned is basically a self-made man hmm. in maybe more than one sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, um, everything in the world kind of exists as instantiations of himself. Like the people that he meets, they're not really human beings to him. They're more just like artifacts of his past that he engages with, who remind him of something or who tell him or who, who remind him in dialogue uh, about, something that happened to him or something that was true between them. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything is sort of uh, – he, he's he's like a guy in a hall of mirrors and everything is just sort of reflecting himself back at him. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the film, that becomes just totally unbearable to him. And it's that um, – it feels very much kind of a commentary on the, on the person who's just uh, so good at self-mythologizing, so good at um, – creating a life for himself out of sheer will, uh, that, uh, he kind of loses, uh, he doesn't lose himself, but he, he loses a clear idea of who he actually is underneath all of the, the mythologizing about himself.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's telling, too, that the movie does a good job of of shooting him in that mode and in that way. Like he's kind of like you'd mentioned, he's framed as that golden god. But the movie spends a lot of time kind of establishing him in a place and a setting that is very um idealized. And at least at very first, It's the kind of setting that you you kind of want to aspire to, or at least you've been told that you want to aspire to. Very nice houses, everybody's got a pool that's been laid in, and everybody seems, you know relaxed and rich and they're they're sitting around drinking gin and tonics or saying that they just drank too much last night um david l quaid is the cinematographer um, who shot this movie and he does such a good job of showing first the idealized side that feels very beautiful and polished we see uh woodland creatures kind of drinking from streams in a very idyllic fashion and then as the film goes on and ned moves from pool to pool and place to place the forests that he's walking through kind of gain a more sinister cast as the sun is going down. And that kind of feels like a literalization of what's going on in his head as he's thinking through how life is caught up with him and he doesn't understand it unawares. But as the light gets colder, um, it kind of feels like a reversal of that classic golden hour way of shooting movies where, you know, Twilight or Dusk is, is typically a little bit more idealized and beautiful. But here it feels as though, Ned knows that time is catching up with him and he's trying to hang on to as much as he possibly can. And in his attempts to grasp that youth and that vitality that he once had as he's jumping from pool to pool. He's unable to hang on to it, and the characters around him tend to get a little bit more hostile and a little bit also lower class, which I find kind of interesting as well. Like He's moving literally from the top of a mountain down to the bottom of a hill throughout the course of the film, and you can kind of feel that descent without having to be shown it until you reach the public pool near the very end, where everybody around him knows precisely who he is and what he's done with his life, and he may not even be fully aware of it, but they know that He's not a particularly good person, and he has never been a good person to them. And they're going to let him know about that and try to break through that facade and that self-idealization. And right around that point is when the light really starts to get cold and the storm clouds start to roll in and sort of literalize what's going on here without actually telling us how or why that needs to happen.
0: And, and well, they don't only puncture his sense of self. They also start... Reminding him and hinting at the fact that he has unpaid bills, he might not be as rich as he as he thinks he is or likes to think that he is, Mm -hmm. and that kind of also seems like a death knell. Is that he does not only does he not have the admiration of all of his fellow man around him, he's not even all that rich, and it's Mm -hmm. almost like that lack that realization of his lack of material success is just as crushing to him as, as the realization that everyone around him kind of, you know, looks, gives him the side eye all the time. That's also very telling the closer he gets to home, the more and more gets stripped away from him.
1: He puts up a really good front, but there's no there, there underneath it. And I think it's really telling that his character is ostensibly an ad man, which feels kind of fitting for the setting and the time. This would be right around the same time of the Madison Avenue, mad men. Um, And I think that's kind of interesting, too, just because John Cheever, like, sort of stories were used as a lot of the inspiration for the TV show Mad Men. So there's that ongoing commentary about the personas we put on and the lies that we tell in order to present ourselves to other people being a very deeply, like, uniquely American pastime. And this feels like... Kind of that essence of Mad Men sort of distilled down into 90 Minutes in a way that feels a little bit weirder and a little bit more dreamlike, but also very much of a time and place with that sensibility. Um, especially because, you know, the idea of advertising is literally trying to present something as attractive in order to get you to buy it. And it's really only ever just about the exchange of money for something that may or may not even be worth anything. And in the end, we kind of get a sense for what Ned is worth, or at least what he has treated his his the things that are most valuable to him as being worth which is essentially nothing when he gets home it's almost like he's breaking back into eden because the house is empty mm-hmm. and the grounds are in a complete disarray and this is where he wants to be the most and he still can't even get in the front door and i find that deeply
0: heartbreaking he's he's a hollow man he's there's there's something about that that outer facade you know his his physical beauty um, his, his charm, his, his bravado. Um, and yet by, by the time we get to the end of the film and he's, you know, kneeling, just pounding on that door, a door that won't open, that will never open. He's out in the rain. Um, he has, he has nothing. Uh, he, yeah. he hasn't physically changed at all. Um, and he his situation, his actual situation, isn't any different from the way it was at the beginning of the movie. It takes place over the course of an afternoon, mm-hmm. and and yet uh, we get the sense that something he he's hollowed himself out, and when he doesn't have the facade any anymore, then there's nothing. Mm-hmm. He's c- constructed a shell. If the shell's gone, there's just empty air there, mm-hmm. and it's telling that the final shot of the film is on an empty room mm. I just, it, it's it's again this is the sort of thing like talking about it it seems like oh maybe it's a little bit on the nose you know it's like symbolism with a capital S mm-hmm. but watching the movie or at least for me I'm, I'm curious to know if you thought this since it was your your first viewing watching it it doesn't feel like it's symbolism with a capital S it feels very much like as you're experiencing it, as you're experiencing it it's just totally uh just has such conviction and dreamlike logic to it that it feels it, it feels like it couldn't be any other way.
1: I think the dreamlike logic really does help there. Towards the end, I feel like the symbolism does get a little bit on the nose, and maybe that's because I, I slightly favor the Cheever short story over this, because that turn at the end of the reveal that the house is empty and always has been— just happens in a single sentence. And this movie does take its sweet time establishing just how pathetic Ned's situation is. So I'll give Cheever the edge there, but, you know, he's Cheever. He's allowed to have that edge. Fair
0: fair enough. I actually, I have not read the Cheever short story yet. It's very good. Maybe I'll come around to your way of seeing things whenever I catch up with that Cheever story.
1: Yeah, but I mean, the rest of the movie... I think carries that mood and that tone without you having had to have read it and is able to get across a lot of that meaning without needing the symbolism, partly because it is operating under the machine of dream logic and partly because you don't need to have a one-to-one mapping of this is what's happening in the movie, so this must be what's also happening in quote-unquote real life. Because the movie is real life for Ned, regardless of what may or may not actually be physically happening, what's happening on screen is still very true for this character and so it's true for us as the audience and we're able to come away i think with a deeper sense of devastation and loss than we would have if it had just been a straight literal story about an ad man who loses his job and loses his family and also loses his friends and his place in society we get the sense that all of that has happened but we don't need to know the particulars because what's important is the way that ned is moving through the world as these things are happening. Whether or not that's happening in real time or over the course of just an afternoon doesn't really matter in the long run because that feeling of Ned sort of skating through life is what's really important here.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you had a chance to, to watch this. I am glad to have a excuse to revisit myself. It's a good I just movie. remember the first time I saw it, I was just sort of like how it, it feels like one of those movies like I feel like more people should talk about it. Mm. I feel like I don't hear a whole lot of uh Hosanna's over the swimmer that you do for me some of the other films of this period.
1: Glad to add to that chorus, let's make it bigger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listeners, if, if you watched along with us on The Swimmer and had some thoughts on on any of it, there's a lot to talk about. In it for sure. Uh, We're always interested to hear more about that. Let us know on Twitter, letterboxed, or over email we love, to, as always, to hear from you. That'll do it for this week's watch list segment. Next week's Watchlist segment, Sarah, is your pick. And you've picked one that I'm excited to catch up with because I've been meaning to for a while.
1: We're going with a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, we will be watching Edge of Tomorrow, which is a 2014 movie uh, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And um, it's also been known under the title Live, Die, Repeat as well. So if you've seen the movie Live, Die, Repeat starring Tom Cruise, you have also seen... Edge of Tomorrow, starring Tom Cruise, under either title. It's a very good movie. It's available to stream on HBO Max and also available to rent on most of the usual suspects. And I'm not going to say too much more about it or about how it ties into our new release review until we've had the chance to watch both.
0: Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking about that for sure. We are, of course, going to be reviewing a little movie called Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania. <laughs> so two big movies uh, being big together. We'll, we'll see how they pair.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting pairing for sure.
0: Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.